You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's August 23rd. A new RAND report finds that, in 2016, Americans spent nearly $150 billion on cocaine, heroin, marijuana, and methamphetamine. This rivals U.S. spending on alcohol. Let's break down some of the findings, drug by drug. First, cocaine. Consumption of cocaine fell precipitously from 2006 to 2010. This decline slowed by 2015. In 2015 and 2016, there were an estimated 2.4 million people in the U.S. who used cocaine on four or more days in the past month. Second, heroin. Consumption of heroin in the U.S. increased 10% per year between 2010 and 2016. The size of the retail heroin market is now closer to the size of the marijuana market than it is to the other drugs. Third, marijuana. The U.S. market for marijuana is roughly the size of the cocaine and meth markets combined. We estimate that from 2010 to 2016, there is a 24% increase in marijuana spending, from $42 billion to $52 billion. The number of people who said that they had used marijuana in the past month also increased by nearly 30%, from $25 million to $32 million. And finally, there's meth. There is a steady increase in the amount of meth seized within the U.S. and at the southwest border from 2007 through 2016, and there was a corresponding increase in the use of meth from 2010 to 2016. However, it's important to note that meth estimates are subject to the greatest uncertainty. So now we're back to that big number of $150 billion that Americans spent across all four of these drugs in 2016. Notably, this was driven in large part by the small share of people who use these drugs on a daily or near-daily basis. Our findings provide valuable insights into the complex markets for illicit drugs. Policymakers may be able to use the data to better understand drug use outcomes and the effects of policies. Kids across the country are heading back to school this week. For students attending most middle and high schools in the U.S., that means waking up for classes that start at 8 a.m. or earlier. According to Rand's Wendy Troxell, a sleep researcher and a parent of two teenagers, these early start times leave most teens chronically sleep-deprived during the week. Evidence shows that inadequate sleep in teens is associated with greater risk of mental and physical health problems, including depression, suicide, and obesity. Lack of sleep also creates problems with concentration, memory, and ability to learn. This epidemic of sleep deprivation among American teens could be mitigated if schools started later, says Troxel. When start times are pushed back, kids get more sleep and they're more likely to show up for school, be on time, and be ready to learn. They're even more likely to graduate. But until school districts decide to ring the school bell later, parents are stuck forcing their groggy teenagers out of bed. Here are a couple tips from Troxel to help ease the pain. First, and this may be a little late to try out this school year, but Start adjusting your kids' sleep schedules at least two weeks before the first day of school. 
it's easier for the body to adjust to changes made in smaller increments. Second, keep in mind that your teens will naturally drift towards staying up late and sleeping in on the weekends. But you should set limits on how late they wake up. That will help ensure that Monday morning isn't a shock to the system. Just remember that teens do need some catch-up sleep on the weekends. Hopefully, these small changes will help those of you listening who, like Troxel, may be facing increasingly irritable offspring this time of year. Good luck, parents. The Trump administration announced last week that it would postpone new tariffs on Chinese consumer goods until December. Items that would be affected include cell phones, laptops, video game systems, and some toys and clothing. The reason for the delay, President Trump said, is so that tariffs would not affect U.S. consumers until after the Christmas shopping season. But still, tariffs remain in place on hundreds of billions of dollars of other commodities from China. And they don't seem to be working, says Rand's Charles Reese. Quote, The go-it-alone approach is imposing a high and growing cost on the U.S. economy and could ultimately threaten global prosperity. What's more, there's no quick resolution in sight. Last week, South Korean President Moon Jae-in gave an address to commemorate the liberation of the Korean Peninsula from Japan in 1945. In this nationally televised speech, Moon pledged to achieve Korean unification by 2045. In response, North Korea reportedly launched at least two missiles off its east coast the following day. This was the sixth time North Korea has tested short-range ballistic missiles or other projectiles since late July. So, is Korean unification possible, and is Moon's proposed time period realistic? A RAND report published last year found that neither South Korea nor North Korea is ready for a successful union. It also laid out nine potential paths toward unification. The best option, the author found, is likely associated with regime collapse in the North. This would require negotiations with the government that replaces Kim Jong-un, a process that would take many years. Educators have to make tough decisions about how to support students who are struggling with academic or behavioral issues, and evidence about what strategies work best is not always available. So where do teachers and principals turn for guidance? To find out, RAND researchers asked a nationally representative sample of educators. Both teachers and principals said that colleagues are a go-to resource for addressing student needs. More than half of teachers said that the first source they consult is another teacher, support staff, or a school or district leader. And about half of principals said that their first resource would be a colleague. Because colleagues are such an important source of information, there's a potential opportunity for researchers and policymakers who want to promote greater use of high-quality evidence-based materials. They should consider ways to leverage existing networks of colleagues, or develop new ones, that can foster productive dialogue about interventions that are both evidence-based and aligned with local contexts and needs. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. See you next week.